Today's Total SF is a flashback episode featuring Giants PA announcer Rennell Brooks-Moon. I put this episode on for myself the other day just because it felt like a good time for a strong dose of Rennell's positivity. She also talks about her family. Both her parents positively impacted the African-American community in the Bay Area. Her father, Nat Brooks, was the first black principal in San Francisco. One of my all-time favorite episodes from August 13th, 2019. Here's Rennell. From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Like a lot of Bay Area residents, Rennell Brooks-Moon has been a voice I've been hearing in my head all of my adult life on KML starting in the late 1980s, then KISS FM, and now as a public address announcer for the San Francisco Giants. I was always happy Rennell's voice was there, but might have been taking it for granted a little before I read Dan Brown's excellent recent profile in The Athletic and learned that her father was a principal at Poly High in San Francisco. That sent me down a rabbit hole in the San Francisco Chronicle archive, reading about her dad, Nathaniel Brooks, who was the first black principal in the district in 1968 and was a force for change as an educator throughout his life. It made me realize that the thing I like most about Rennell, her authenticity as a member of this community, probably isn't a persona, but the way she was brought up to live her life. That led to an invite on the big event and one of my all-time favorite interviews. Here's Rennell Brooks-Moon talking about why, after 20 years at work for the Giants, she's still, in her words, little Rennell at Candlestick Park and doesn't hesitate to cheer for the home team. And we are into it, man. Like, you know, the walk-off homer, we all get up and high-five. And, I, you know, I... I, for the most part, I try to contain myself, but if something amazing happens, I'm up on my feet. And now everybody, all our season ticket holders in Section 214, which is right in front of me, we're like a family. So they'll turn around. They'll come up and high-five me. It's, it's just been amazing. But, yeah, my my fandom has has not changed at all. I just maybe contain it a little bit more, right? <laughs> This episode is an explosion of Bay Area culture. We talk a lot about the old Circle Star Theater in San Carlos, RIP Circle Star. We cover her one year working for Dr. Donald D. Rose at KFRC, her friendship with Willie McCovey, and her tryouts as the PA announcer, which were at Candlestick Park because the new ballpark was still under construction. But it all comes back to her mom and dad who encouraged Rennell to make sure her voice was heard and appreciate the place she comes from. We're your concierge for culture in the Bay Area. I'm Peter Hartlob, and this is The Big Event. Welcome to the San Francisco Chronicle, Rennell Brooks-Moon. So thrilled to have you here today. Peter, thanks for having me. I am so thrilled to be here. This is amazing. Never been here before in my 61 years on this earth. How could you, uh, <laughs> first of all, I don't believe the 61. Thank and, you for that. <laughs> how could you have not been to the Chronicle? You're a Bay Area institution. They, didn't your class come through here? Or? Never happened. Never happened. Never happened. Yeah. So I'm really thrilled to be here. This is amazing. Well, welcome to the Chronicle. Um, we've been looking through some old photos and uh, uh, photos of uh, Willie McCovey. We got a little Kruko in there, <laughs> and um, we got your your dad too, which is actually what what spurred me to 
give you a call and, and bring you in. I, I read Dan Brown's great piece Thank and you. so many elements. I'm going to, I'm going to shout out the competition. Dan Brown <laughs> of the athletic did a wonderful profile. Thank you. And the thing that I, I latched onto is, um, your father and your mother and what a big influence they were for you. So I started digging around in the Chronicle archive and, um, learned a little bit about your father and, uh, first, African-American principal in San Francisco. That's correct, yeah. Yeah, and and I'm assuming a pretty big influence on your life. Music and sports, is that kind of who introduced you? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I often tell folks that everything that I've been privileged and blessed to do for the last 35 years or so in my career is absolutely everything that I enjoy doing with my dad from as young an age that I can remember sitting on his lap, watching the Ed Sullivan show every Sunday night. <laughs> he would critique the acts and everything and you know, taking me to ball games and getting me into sports. It's just how I was raised. I, I don't know anything else. And, and my mom, too, I, I got to give her a lot of credit because she is the biggest base. She's an original gamer, babe. How about that? All right. <laughs> she is the biggest baseball fan she got the love of the sport from my granddad, my papa in Texarkana, Texas, uh-huh. who was a big Negro League fan, obviously, and uh, taught mother how to score and taught her the love of the game, which she passed down to me literally in utero because she was pregnant with me in 1958 when the Giants moved out here. So oh, awesome. we think that some, there's something that might have <laughs> been predetermined, you know, in the in the planets or something. But yeah, I mean, I, I and and my big brother, you know, he, he dreamed of being uh, Juan Marichal or Don Drysdale or Sandy Koufax. And he was a great, great young athlete, and I just remember he's eight years older than me. Every summer, we're in the car, we're going to Stockton and all over Central Valley for all of his tournaments and everything. And I loved every minute. It's just what my family did. Yeah. Yeah. Were you, were you born in the Bay Area? Born in Oakland, yeah. And then uh, we lived in Berkeley for a bit, and we lived in Richmond. And then uh, when Dad got the job at Polytechnic, I think it was nine, eight or nine, we moved down to Menlo Park. Yeah. And do you have a first music memory? You mentioned Ed Sullivan. Do you remember who you were watching and, and uh, what oh, yeah. really clicked for you? It was totally Motown. Uh-huh. It was completely, oh my gosh, I, uh, I'm still obsessed with Motown music. But yeah, it was, my dad loved the Temps. I loved the Supremes because, of course, I wanted to grow up and be Diana Ross because <laughs> I'd never seen an African-American woman like that before on television, right? And yeah, it was all the Motown acts. And then, of course, later on, as I got into my teen years, it's the Jackson 5. And Daddy and I had so many daddy daughter dates at the circle star theater you remember that let's talk about the circle star (laughs) theater please because i'm i'm a peninsula guy too yes and i saw little richard there with my parents nice and then and all the way up to like i saw punk bands there i saw fishbone there wow man could you rennell i'd like you to do it could you please describe the circle star theater because it was not your typical music venue no it was it was one of those rare theater in the rounds nestled in San Carlos, right, Peter? Right right along the freeway there, yeah. Who, you know, if you drive, you going on the freeway, you'd never know that every major musical act in town <laughs> performed at that venue. Uh, and and they always said it, every seat was a great seat because the, the, the stage spun around, the theater in the round. Yeah. Everyone came through. 
our first family concert, there was Sammy Davis Jr. and I believe Dionne Warwick. Oh. And I was, I was in heaven. Yeah. Because I, you know, I love show business. I get that from my daddy too. Um, and the Carol Burnett show, she remains my, my idol. But, you know, being able to see, I mean, everybody. Daddy and I went to see, I remember, Stevie Wonder. We went together to see the Supremes. This was post-Diana after she broke my heart, <laughs> devastated me, and left the group. Um, and then, you know, in high school and college, the, the Jackson 5 then became the Jacksons, saw them, the OJs, Casey and the Sunshine Band, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes with the late, great Teddy Pendergrass. Yeah. Are you kidding me? You, we saw everybody there. And then Luther, when I was in college, Luther Vandross, who is my all-time favorite male vocalist. Yeah. And I, and I got to meet him several times through my work at, at KMEL. But just saw everybody you there. You saw Luther Vandross at the Circle Star. I saw him at I the Circle you. Star. And and then I, w- I was able to go backstage once I'm now working at KMEL. But when I first saw him, I was in college. Oh, and Roberta Flack and people. Bryce and Stephanie Mills. Oh, I could. Oh, the memories just come flooding back. The thing I loved about the Circle Star is, um, especially the first couple concerts I went to there, um, because in the later years, it started to kind of sound like a Bart when you go through the tunnel. <laughs> it started making noises when it, when the stage spun around. Yeah, yeah. But I remember my parents took me there when I was young, and I remember just being at the Circle Star, whoever was up there, you'd get a little comedy routine about the fact that they were spinning around on the Circle Star and Always. passing the same people. Yeah, they had to riff know. on that, of course, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, or oh, I remember seeing Rufus and Shaka Khan, and God bless her heart, she was notorious for... Um, enjoying substances (laughs) prior to her performance and there was so it was hit and miss when you went to see Rufus and Shaka so I saw her a couple times when she was great but I saw her one time when she came on stage with a bottle of I want to say Hennessy (laughs) (laughs) I mean she came on stage with it and we heard no vocals I remember she ended up in somebody's lap in the audience yeah yeah but she's turned things around that voice I can't even handle it still in my top five national anthems. And I think the last time I saw her was probably a Niners game at Candlestick. Mm. And I mean, I thought, I'm glad there were no glass drinks there because I think they would have shattered. Her right. Voice. Like, it's so high. I'm like, I'm glad I have a plastic cup here. She's amazing because yeah. it's just, she is so, it's just natural gift because it's effortless. She can hit, she can go, you know, from one octave all the way up to another octave, and it's just nothing. Yeah. It's so easy for her. Whereas you see singers today, they put the finger on the ear and they're struggling to hit those <laughs> notes. It's just easy with her. It's amazing. Yeah. What was your first experience with the microphone? Did you want to be a singer or were you thinking radio? Do you remember kind of the first time that you thought, maybe I'll be a performer? I, I'm i telling you, watching Diana Ross and the Supremes, I wanted to be a singer and uh, I did every possible talent show as a <laughs> child uh, in, in elementary school, but I never thought about radio. I tell this story all the time, Peter, because, you know, growing up early 60s, there's there's no women on the radio. And there's certainly no women of color. So mm-hmm. it was not a possibility for me. It's just not something I thought. Back then, you were encouraged to be a librarian, you know, all the gender-specific occupations, a librarian, a teacher, a nurse, not a doctor, but a nurse. So it just was not 
ever something. I never even called in a radio station, a, a request line or a contest. So then to have, have built this career is, is super crazy. But no, I just, I just wanted to sing. I just wanted to sing. Did, seeing your father and, and mother, um, seeing him breaking down walls, and, and did that influence you and make you feel like maybe you could do it? Um, it did. It did. I mean, later, later on, you know, I didn't, I mean, I always understood where my parents came from, how hard they fought for their education. I remember my dad telling me a story uh, when he, I mean, he, all, they just wanted to get their education and all the barriers that they had to overcome. He told a story of one time when the bus came to pick him up and take him to school, told him to go get on the rear entrance, the back of the bus. And by the time he gets there, the bus takes off. Yeah. So, you know, but that never deterred him. And they always instilled in myself and my siblings that education is the greatest deterrent to racism and also your sense of community and how you have got to be an active part in your community in order to affect change. So I got that very early on. And as a matter of fact, I I was going to follow in both my parents' footsteps and, and be an educator which ironically I feel like I kind of have done, you know, as I've mentored over the years. Uh, but, yeah, I was going to follow in their footsteps, and my dad is my hero. I would oftentimes see him. I mean, he's, he's working overtime. He's on the phone at home after dinner. He's talking to parents or, uh, you know, putting out fires. Or he would go after dinner to, to homes and talk to the parents. I mean, he really was invested in it. It meant so much to him to change these kids' lives that were underprivileged. And I was often asked, well, are you, are you jealous? I mean, you know, he'll get your dad's interest and all that. I was like, no. First of all, I'm a daddy's girl, and <laughs> there's no mistake in that. But I just, he was my hero. There are yeah. pictures at home of me just sitting next to my dad while he's doing lesson plans or even paying bills or he's on the phone, and I'm just looking at him in awe. I was always by his side. So as I got older and really understood what I could do with the opportunities I was given, it really, really has affected me. And, and still to this day, everything I do every day is to honor his legacy and make sure that I am making some sort of change, that I'm making a positive impact and that I'm making it better for the next generation. Do you remember his, I think it was a year at Poly High and it was a tumultuous year. I mean, yeah. it was front page news when he was hired. Yeah, even Channel 5 came to the house to interview him when he got hired. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, the school had, had been having, you know, at least the district had been saying the school had been having some struggles and yeah. there were protests all around San Francisco. Do you remember that time and, and what that year was like? I Since we lived in, in, in Menlo Park, I, I didn't really have a sense of what was going on in San Francisco. And like I say, I was eight or nine. And I knew I, I, I knew it was difficult, but it's not something that we ever really talked about. It's just like you just hunkered down and you do what is necessary. You stay the course. You keep your eyes on the prize. Um, and I just, I just remember being so proud of him. But I, I don't remember how tumultuous it was. And you know, obviously now that I've gotten older, I, I've learned more about that year. But I'm telling you, Peter, very rarely does a day go by that I don't hear from one of my dad's students at Poly to say what an impact he had on them all these years ago. And, and he started programs, I should mention. Yeah. He started programs at, at Poly that I'm, I'm sure you can trace those programs being used this day. Yeah. yeah, he was a visionary. 
He was an innovator and he was just, I just admired his commitment to what he did. Yeah. And he continued it right up until retirement. He was still mentoring. He worked at Stanford for a bit. And I mean, it was it was really, truly his life's calling, you yeah. know? Yeah. Well, I, I just thought it was so cool to learn that and then search around in our archive and, and realize, you know, within the district, he your, your dad broke some ground. He did. He really he really broke some ground and made an impact. And, and like I say, I, I hear from students of his, also his students when he was uh went on to the Sequoia Union High School District, but, it, you know, uh, both my parents were educators. I hear, you know, your your dad was, you know, my vice principal. He was amazing. He got me on the right track. Your mom was my, you know, typing teacher in middle school. And, you know, my mother is still the queen of the community because she taught so many generations down there in East Palo Alto. So, yeah. I mean, that just fills me with joy and pride. And, you know, he was, he was such a great man. And he was such an amazing man. And he really... He really did change the world, and all I've ever wanted to do since we lost him in '03 is make sure that I'm honoring his legacy. Yeah. And he got to he got to oh. he got to go to games and hear you Ooh. with the Giants for a few years. He was there April 11th, 2000, for the for the for opening day at that ballpark, uh-huh. and yeah, he he wasn't doing so well then. Um, he had heart problems and dementia was starting to kick in, but. <laughs> I remember one game he met Mike Kruko in the hallway and, and, and daddy, you know, they were, they were talking and Mike was engaging him in a conversation and my dad shakes his hand and goes, yeah, you're a good pitcher. You know, and, and that's when his, you know, his memory wasn't as sharp and everything, but, and Kruko yeah. fell out laughing. It was, it was just a great moment. And, and then for my mom to meet Mr. McCovey and Mr. Mays, I never call either of them by their first name. It's uh-huh. just, you, why, you can't. You got to show the utmost respect. So mommy got to meet Mr. Mays when I helped emcee um, the grand opening of Willie Mays Field down on the peninsula a few years ago. But she got to meet Willie McCovey uh, at one of our play ball luncheons a number of years ago. And she proceeded to tell him what he did in his major league debut. She broke down the <laughs> stats, right? I was like, you go, mama. And I'm telling you, original gamer, babe. And Mr. McCovey looks at me and goes, oh, okay, I see where you get it from. <laughs> but that's been one of the joys of my life is, you know, for my parents to meet, you know, these icons and and these these players and historical figures that meant so much to them. Where'd your mom teach uh, in how many years? Uh, you know, she, she was a substitute. She... This was great. She would be a stay-at-home mom when she had a kid, and then she might sub, and then she would do a little full-time. But, you know, she primarily um, was a substitute teacher at, uh, I want to say, Green Oaks and Garden Oaks in East Palo Alto, and uh, typing and English were were the subjects that she taught. Yeah. Still a baseball fan? Oh, my God. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Mother and I will watch games on the phone together yeah you know or if something happens i've got to call her she calls me i'm like mom did you see pablo's walk off baby i did i did oh that was just i just love that panda he's just so oh my they're doing so well every tv has the game on in the house and every radio is on (laughs) in the house too i do the same thing yeah, my mom's the same way. We're we're texting each other during games. It's and the she's, best. She's telling me, you know, she's getting into like, you know, Jarebko and McKinney on the Warriors. Like, like who, 
at the end of the bench, they should be subbing in with the oh, second unit. That's so know. good. She's coaching. <laughs> Basically, my, right? <laughs> that's good. Who, who took you to your first game? Do you remember? Do you remember? Or what, what's your first baseball memory? Yeah, it's Candlestick Park with mom, dad, and my older brother, Nate Brooks Jr. Okay. Um, yeah. And um, I just remember just, well, I've, I'm already loving baseball, you know, watching my brother play and, you know, listening to games with mom and stuff. But I, I remember... Every summer, really, Peter, as a kid, I just remember we spent it at, at Candlestick. And then when the A's came, we'd, we'd go there, too. We went, my brother, dad, and I rode Bart uh, <laughs> early 70s to yeah. a World Series game together. And, I mean, that's just what my family did. And I remember I was in college, was it 77? Um When Mr. October hit three home runs in a game during the World Series, the great Reggie Jackson. And I called mommy after mom and dad after every home run. But I was the I went to Mills College, Women's College. Mm -hmm. I'm the only one that cares about the World Series. I couldn't get anybody to join me and watch it. So I'm watching, enjoying it, calling home after every bomb and everything. But I was I thought everybody was raised like I was raised that you love baseball and this is what your family was into. Yeah, couldn't get anybody interested. <laughs> and now I look at uh, you know I look at all of these fantastic female fans all over the league, and I'm like, where were y'all when I was in college? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it was a different time. I mean, the, totally. And, and Candlestick was a different vibe. I, I try to explain it to my kids who no. really only know <laughs> like only know like Triumph and Bay Area sports. Exactly. You know what it was like going to Candlestick year after year. We were looking at some old photos and you know the Harry M. Stevens cups and right. Not not as much gear. I noticed like people you might have a giant shirt in there somewhere but mostly people were wearing parkas. They were, right. They were uh, had to right. Oh my gosh. Yeah, but those those were good times. Those are such good times. Yeah. Such good times. And so many great players we've had the privilege of watching, you know, over the last decades. It's just been amazing. Uh, well, I think I first heard your voice on KML and I was telling you coming in. I was <laughs> I was more of a rocker. I was more of like a maybe a KSJO guy, but my sister was, you know, she had wanted to see Prince at the Cow Palace in 85 mm. and was really in so if she was giving me a ride somewhere uh-huh. we were going to be listening to KML in the morning so I'm, I'm thinking like 87 88 yes uh-huh was that your first radio gig no my first radio gig how about this KFRC wow how about that did you overlap with Dr. Donald D. Rose I or? got one year in with the <laughs> legendary Dr. Don Rose and um, yeah. Right after that, they changed the format to Magic 61. They tried a big band sure. format. Everything was changing at that time. But yeah. I had originally, when I got out of college, I worked at KCBS News Radio um, for four years. But I wasn't aspiring to be a, a reporter or anything like that. I worked yeah. behind the scenes, which I loved. I, I uh, worked in public affairs. And that really spoke to me because I was able to... Uh, write PSAs and produce shows um, for the voiceless in the community. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to parlay that after I spent four years at KCBS. I said, well, let me see what I can do at a music station now because I love music. Again, still not thinking I would ever be on air. Mm -hmm. Let me just go. And I had this opportunity. I took a sales assistant job at KFRC just to get my foot in the door. And it was amazing. And just in a few, maybe just a few short months later, I 
became public affairs coordinator. And my boss at the time, Joanne Green, our public affairs director, went on maternity leave. So I got to run the department for several months. And I also, that was my first on-air situation. I became the host of, you know, we had the Sunday block of public affairs shows back then, you know. So I became the host of Bayview. A look (laughs) at the issues and concerns of the Bay Area black community. And again, the same, you know, vibe I had at KCBS. I'm like, I was thrilled to be able to give exposure to artists and entertainers and nonprofits and, you know, educators and lecturers and, you know, write authors. You know, I was able to give them exposure on that show. So it was like a 30 minute talk show. Uh I had no experience doing that, but I just sat down and had conversations and did that. Then I sing at the Christmas party. We put together an employee band. We did a whole 30 minute Motown review. (laughs) It was so much fun. What was your song? What's your go to? Uh, It was, I think. I think it was, wait a minute, it was before Gladys left Motown. It had. It was I Heard It Through the Grapevine, the Gladys Knight version, yes. Because that's, that's my girl and that's my dad's girl. He loved him some Gladys Knight. But we did a whole Motown review, but at fir- the first number we did was Greatest Love of All. Trust me, Peter, I can't sing it like the great Whitney Houston, but I did it justice. <laughs> because I remember Albert Lord, who was one of our chief engineers, he put the band together and he said, we want to grab them. He goes, they're all going to be drunk at the Christmas party. <laughs> Let's grab them with this emotional rendition, which we did. Then we did a 30-minute set. And then the great Dave Sholin, Dave the Duke Sholin, who was on KFRC and was the program director, asked me, have you ever thought about being on the radio? I was like, uh, no. And he asked me to make him a demo tape when we came back from the holiday vacation. After the Christmas party. After, after that, I sang the Christmas party. That ended up being your audition. That was it. And thank you, <laughs> Albert Lord, for you know having me be a part of that band. But who knows what would have happened had I not. And, and Dave was like, I want to be your agent. I, have you ever thought about being, being on the radio? So I made him a demo tape when we got back. He put me on the air overnight uh, on the weekend. And then he moved me very quickly up to afternoon drive on the weekends. And then shortly thereafter, the format flipped to Magic 61. And I said, well, it was great. I had a great, who knew? It was great. I enjoyed it (laughs) while it lasted. But Jack Silver, who was the music director at the time, knew Steve Rivers, who was the program director at KMEL, and referred me to Steve because there was an overnight slot. And I'm like, you know, who's going to take a chance on me? I have so little experience. I was out of work for one week. (laughs) I went and met with Steve Rivers. Next thing I know, I'm doing overnights on KMEL, which led to me filling in for my dear friend Sue Hall when she went on maternity leave, which then landed me on the morning show. Yeah. That's, That's the journey. That's my journey. But how cool was it to have some time at the heritage station of this market, KFRC, oh, that we yeah. all grew up listening to. Fantastic. You couldn't have drawn it up better because you got your time at KFRC. But KMEL in, in the late 80s, man, that seemed like a fun place to work. You know what, Peter? It re- And I tell people this all the time. We all felt, we're like the cast of Friends, all of yeah. us <laughs> around here. We, are, we all said it and felt like, we're never going to have it like this again. This is really special what's happening here. And we were the only game in town. There was no wild 94.9 back then. There was no 99. It was us. As a matter of fact, the first song I played when I got there in 86 was Bon Jovi. Before, it, Yeah, it was top 40 before it went urban a couple years later. Wow. Yeah, Living on a Prayer was the first thing, <laughs> was the first song. I, it kicked off a 13-in-a-row power play <laughs> <laughs> on 106 KML. 
Yeah, but um, we all said it's never it's never going to be like this because we 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 had um, we all did club gigs too because that yeah. was the big scene. You know, all those Friday Saturday night club gigs, and we'd all go support each other at the club gigs. We did live broadcasts. We'd all support each other at the live broadcasts. We would hang out at each other's apartments on the weekend and have potlucks and stuff. It was so unique and so special, and we knew it. We all knew it at that time. So. I remember hearing you through the years, and then all of a sudden, the Giants are going to make a switch with their um, PA announcer. Uh, controversial for a couple of weeks, and then we hear Rennell Brooks Moon is coming in. How did you, how did you find out about that? Was was that another? unexpected pleasure for you it was i i tell everybody this career of mine is a it's a complete accident but really it's a it's a gift from god let me not joke about it uh so now i, I did 11 years at kmel and then i um was offered the job of launching what was to be the sister station of kmel kiss fm 98.1 sure where I was honored to be one of the first women in the country to host my own morning show. Cause that, you know, we were all, like I was, I was a, the traffic girl, the sidekick for so many years. Right. Cause that's what happened in the late eighties. So this is now 97. So I got the, the offer to launch the station, which we did. And it was amazing. And then the fall of 1999, I checked my voicemail messages after the show. And there's a message from, the vice president of marketing for the San Francisco Giants. And I was like, well, what in the world is this? Because I had no idea. There, I had I had heard no talk of them hiring an, a PA now, a new PA announcer. Yeah. I had heard no talk of that. And uh, so I listened to the message, and I played it again to make sure I heard it right. And I didn't call him back immediately. Who did I call first, Peter? Oh, I don't know. You're Mommy? <laughs> they called Mom first. Juanita Brooks. That's right. I, that was the first call I made. And uh, I was like, Mom, you're not going to believe this, but I've been invited to audition for the new PA job at the new ballpark. And she lost her mind, <laughs> as did I. Um, so that was just, it just came out of nowhere. And it wasn't widely advertised that they were looking for a new one. It was kind of like private auditions. Yeah. And I didn't even know at the time, because shout out to Sherry Davis, my predecessor, who really went through the fire when she was hired as the first female PA in Major League Baseball, but shout out to her for taking a lot of hits. I mean, I still took some hits, but she tore down that door for me. So shout out to you, Sherry Davis. And she sent me a lovely note when I got hired too. So thank you so much for that. But um, yeah, I had no idea. And then I found out later that they wanted to stay with a, a female PA, which is good because you, you can't go back, right? Yeah. <laughs> not in progressive San Francisco. That would not be a good look. No. So uh, yeah, I had no idea. I found that out later. So uh I said, absolutely, I'm interested. So I went to Candlestick. I had three auditions. And the first one I went, and I was so excited. And they had me read starting lineups and some in-game copy and some commercials and stuff. And and again, right after I finished, I called Mom and I said, even if I don't get this job, Mom, it was a thrill to be on the mic in the PA booth and hear my voice go out through the bowl at Candlestick Park. I didn't think about that, that they would start you off at Candlestick Park. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, to for the auditions. Yeah, because this was November. No. Yeah, October 99. Sure. Right, right. And the new ballpark, is she's, she's still being constructed and everything. So I did that. I came back for a second audition. And then I came, they called me back for a third audition. And they said it was between me and one other candidate. And I was like, well, here we go. I'm going in. 
I'm going in. I'm going to I'm going to get this gig. And um, so I didn't hear back for like a couple of weeks. Now we're in November and Tommy, my husband and I were headed to Maui for Thanksgiving. And I was like, oh, well, you know, it, it was a great opportunity, you know, uh, you know, maybe maybe one day. I don't know. So I just let it go because I'm going to Maui. I'm good. Right. Yeah. And uh, that Friday before we left, uh, like in the late afternoon, I got the call saying I got the gig. So it was the best Thanksgiving ever, no doubt about it, right? But it, it was it was just amazing. And the third interview, they sprung it on me. I didn't know this. I mean, the third audition, because I hadn't been really interviewed prior to that. Not not a really in depth interview, pretty ca- casual. So the third, the final audition, I do I I do my thing in the booth. Okay, now we're going to take you to meet Peter McGowan. Uh-huh. I was like, could somebody have told me that beforehand so I could prepare myself? I was a nervous wreck. Uh-huh. I was a nervous wreck. I was like, I'm not, I, oh, you're putting this surprise thing on me. I, I needed to prepare. So I remember going to his office and Peter, uh, in, God rest his soul, but um, he interviewed me and he had a legal pad and a pen and he never looked up at me. He asked questions and he never, never looked up. And I was like, okay, well, this isn't this. I see how this is going. It's not. Larry was there as well. Larry Bear was there as well. And I, th- I'm pretty sure Larry really um, was a cheerleader for me because I had known Larry kind of casually. He had listened to me on KML, but I'd also done some work for the Oakland A's, which I think is what got my name thrown in the hat. So I I know. Do you remember Sports Channel before it became Fox Sports Net oh, yeah. and Comcast? Yeah. Oh, sure. So I was on Sports Channel, uh, doing A's inside pitch, doing some pregame interviews on the pregame show. I'll tell you about the Mark McGuire interview in just a moment. <laughs> oh yeah, we got to hear about that. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm, and uh, I'm guessing it wasn't all smooth. Your guess would be absolutely correct. <laughs> so, so I know, and I'd seen Larry every year. There was a Sports Channel play ball lunch, and both teams came, and you know, the management and staff of both teams. So, I'd seen Larry there. So, we kind of casually knew each other, but I knew that he knew my broadcast history, and he knew that I had some sports broadcasting. And I, so I believe he maybe was a cheerleader for me because clearly Mr. McGowan didn't seem that interested, but I somehow got the job and I'm pleased to say that Mr. McGowan and his wife, Debbie could not have been more gracious and more kind to me as the, as the years went on. I mean, but you know what, Peter, that's what I've had to do my whole career. I have to prove myself, you know, a little harder than perhaps other candidates might have to, you know what I mean? So it's happened. It's happened throughout my career. And it happened with Mark McGuire. Oh, (laughs) Oh, so I'm doing, yeah, live pregame show at the Coliseum, my first one. And uh, you're going to interview Mike McGuire. Now, I'm a Virgo, Peters, which means that I thoroughly did my homework. I did all my research. And uh, so I get to set. And he took his sweet time coming to the chair on the field for a live interview. He came with about 20 seconds before we went on. And I'm like, oh, it's like that, Mark McGuire? Okay. And I, you know, up until now, I'd been a big fan, right? I'm like, oh, okay. Then with a, and then the director's counting me down five, four, three, two, one. And he leans over at five seconds. He goes, are you nervous? Because he clearly didn't know who oh, I was, you know. He's he, trying to rattle you. He was so trying to rattle me. So I doubt that he listened to me on the radio, and I, I don't know if he'd seen the other work I'd done, but he clearly was 
I don't know what was going on with him that day. If he just really wanted to rattle me, if he was like so anti-women in sports, if he woke up on the wrong side of the bed. So I was like, oh, it's about to be on right here, Mark McGuire. So like I've had to do several times in my career, prove myself again. And I remember reading in USA Today, I think that's when that paper first came out. I remember reading in the sports section a cover story about him because obviously he was on fire then, and I re- something really resonated for me that he said on his way driving to the ballpark that he would visualize that starting pitcher's arsenal of pitches for that night. I thought I thought it was fascinating, so I laid that on him, and I and then it was all good <laughs> because here again I had to prove myself. I had done my homework. I knew what I was talking about. So that was it. And then I get a big hug at the end of the interview. You got a McGuire hug. I got a McGuire freaking hug. <laughs> you earned that. McGuire. I did, didn't I? But I was like, okay, I see how it is. How's how have things stayed the same, and how has it changed? Uh, working now, do you see more women in the workplace? You, you say you you mentor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is honestly, Peter, that's. I mean, this is an amazing dream job, and I, you know, I I get to meet everybody that I love, you know, from from Mark Grace and Keith Hernandez gave me a big hug when the when the Mets were here and Ernie Banks I got to spend the whole day with him All-Star weekend and Ozzie Smith and you know all these all these and you know, Bob Shepard you know for the Yankees I got to meet him when we went uh, you know back to New York and so that's all amazing and and wonderful and super cool and I don't take that for granted at all but the most fulfilling part of my job and in radio too has been how I've been able to impact and you know, what Sherry did for me, break down doors for the women that are coming up behind me because full circle, that's what dad and mom taught me, right? So, um, and I was just saying this um, with some of my, of my mentees last homestand. I was like, doggone it. You know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. But when I got hired uh, in 2000 for the Giants, I was the only woman in the in-game entertainment department. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh boy, here I go. got to prove myself again. But... Actually, Peter, the guys I worked with could not have been more supportive, more protective of me. And I think I attribute a lot of that to the fact that they had grown up listening to me on KML because they're all <laughs> so much younger than me. Right. And so there was there was a level of respect I had. And plus, they're also younger. So they didn't really come up with that stereotypical nonsense. You know, they're seeing more women out, you know, doing, you know, non stereotypical things. So. We were all super close, but since then, um, there are so many women in the department. Sarah, our in-game entertainment manager, and our in-game entertainment coordinator, Amanda, who's 23 years old, mm-hmm. and uh, Therese, who is our in-stadium host, and um, it's just, and more more editors on the crew and graphics, you know, on the crew. The uh, the way it has expanded has has been really really enjoyable and you know it kind of just happened organically I mean I always offer myself to you know new hires and everything but there was one season a few years ago when we really were dealing with some difficult management of our department and not just the gals but some of the young guys all of a sudden I guess I became Oprah Winfrey because <laughs> I it was like I had office hours at the ballpark they would just come because we get there super early before yeah, the game yeah. starts and all of a sudden I just I went out like this you know assembly line of people coming in can I talk to you mama R they call me mama R and you know I'm like so I would like spend a couple hours before the game you know trying to uplift and encourage these young people so 
um, yeah, in a lot of ways, um, we're still fighting a lot of the same battles. Yeah. But the fact that I've seen more women uh, become, uh, you know, join our department and really shine, and the fact that I can help them do that is, is super rewarding. Does it, 20 years, could you imagine 20 years when you started? Nope. And do you still <laughs> kind of check yourself? Do you get nervous? How are things the same and how are they different? Um, I am really not nervous. I don't know what that's about, but I just, I feel I'm really in my zone. Uh, obviously the first season or maybe first two seasons, I was extremely nervous and it wasn't that I was, didn't think that I could do, I was confident I could do this job. Um, but there was so much negative press before I even turned on a microphone. I can't believe it. I actually looked some of it up. Yeah. I remember leaving for my first spring training in March of 2000 and a columnist for this paper, as a oh. matter of fact, uh, I, again, I was getting criticized. I hadn't even turned on a microphone and he, he, he has now become a big fan of mine. Again, winning people over. Um, but he wrote, and I'm sure it's here in the basement somewhere in the archives, um, let's hope this new PA announcer for the Giants doesn't bring that radio DJ twit style to the ballpark. <sighs> and I was like, I, can you at least give me a chance? Yeah. I haven't said, I haven't announced one batter. I haven't turned the mic on one time. So, yeah, so it was, the pressure was on. So I, and which makes me put more pressure on myself. I, I'd have to think that's a good time to have the kind of parents that you had and, oh. and uh, you know, they, they prepared you for that. What, and my husband often, often if, I, if I'm having a moment, he will often say, what would your dad do? Yeah. What would your dad do? And that, that brings me right back. Well, I just, I got a couple more. Um, uh, wanted to ask you, is it hard to continue to be a fan when it's also your job. Um, I mean, we, we, we came in here and, and we were chatting about the Giants. Yeah. And it sounded like two fans chatting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But how how is that balance when it becomes your job and you, you grew up as such a baseball fan? Yeah. I mean, that's I'm still Little Renale at Candlestick Park. I'm a huge fan. And, in fact, in our booth, um, it's myself, Sarah, our in-game entertainment manager, couple of our uh, audio engineers and Lee, our DJ slash audio engineer. Um, and we are into it, man. Like, you know, the walk off Homer, we all get up and high five. And I, you know, I, I, for the most part, I try to contain myself, but if something amazing happens, I'm up on my feet. And now everybody, all our season ticket holders in section 214, which is right in front of me, we're like a family, so they'll turn around. They'll come up and high-five me. It's, it's just been amazing. But, yeah, my my fandom has has not changed at all. I just maybe contain it a little bit more, right? <laughs> and I wanted to ask you about Willie McCovey. We, we got to look at some photos coming in, and I, I know you two had a special relationship. I mean, the city had a special relationship yeah. with them. Yeah. But uh, you still think about him a lot day to day? Oh, my gosh, every every game every game because he would sit in the suites that were two doors down from the control room in the PA booth. And, and after he passed, I told my husband, I, so I said, I don't know how I'm going to walk past that booth every game. Um, 
and I, I I don't I really don't even know how how this friendship really really began. I just know I told you earlier before we started that I was so nervous I couldn't even speak to him like the first couple of seasons because I would see him every night. Sometimes I'd ride the elevator with him and he wants to engage me in a conversation and I'm just giving one word answers because I don't want to blow it, um, you know. And then he. He started to tell me that he listened to my radio show, and he would uh, he would come in and you know talk about a joke I told that morning, or ask me about a song I played, and his favorite song was "Maybe I'm Crazy." <laughs> Nars Barkley, are you kidding me? He loved that. So, by the way, you did that very well. Well, thank you. I <laughs> I kind of have perfect pitch, Peter. I don't know. No, but thank you. No, so um, so whenever he was on the field for a pregame ceremony. We'd play that for him, and he absolutely loved it. But so then I'm I'm getting loose now that I you know he's engaging me and he's a big fan and everything. I'm like, how is this childhood hero of mine listening to me on the radio? And um, and sometimes he would summon me to his booth, uh, like I said, to ask me things about the show and everything. And and then I got very involved with the uh, Junior Giants and the mm-hmm. stretch drive and everything. So uh, every year I would host the Junior Giants luncheon in November when we'd give away the Willie Mack Awards, and he was always there. So and then we did other community events together, so we really started to, you know, really develop a, a really special friendship. And then, then when he, uh, Mrs. McCovey, Estella, came in, um, right before um, they were getting married. And she, I, di- I didn't know what was happening, but she came in and she goes, uh, Willie, Willie wants to speak to you. Do you have a minute? And I'm like, I took my headphones off. I'm like, are you kidding me? It was like five minutes away from me introducing the anthem. I don't care. He called me. I'm going to, I've been summoned by Mr. Willie McCovey. And he says to me, um, Estella and I are getting married and I would like you to emcee the wedding. Ugh. And I was like, first of all, I was overjoyed for the two of them because yeah. their romance, they were like high school sweethearts. It was the most adorable thing I'd ever seen. So I was like, of course, and just let me know what you need. And then I rushed back to the booth and I had to tell Sarah immediately, my daughter, Sarah, what, what just happened. And and I said, I don't know what that means, though. Am I officiating? Am I emceeing? I don't know what it means. And I I didn't want to ask what it meant. <laughs> so then I later found out that uh, Larry Bear was going to officiate it, but I my job was to welcome. And it was in the it was in the field club lounge at the ballpark. You but you would have you would have never the decor. It was the most romantic setting. It was unbelievable what they did, and they had their logo illuminated. Um, w and an E. It, oh. it was ju- it was. It was amazing. So my job was to welcome everybody at the ballpark and then and then bring Larry up and uh, introduce the best man and all of that. And and then Larry did the ceremony. Then afterwards, I'm like, please join us in the clubhouse for the reception. And so it's not a dry eye, right? Yeah. So it's time for the first dance. I think it might have been Louis Armstrong. It's a Wonderful World, if I'm not mistaken. And so um, I suggested that um, the guy that was uh, handling his wheelchair, I said, why don't you move him so he can dance with Estella in the wheelchair? And so he kind of spun them so he could kind of, you know, spin her around on the floor. And then after that, the DJ went into Love Train by the OJs. And now, everybody there, we have now, we're now holding hands, and we formed a Love Train circle around them. 
and we're all going around singing Love Train, holding hands, and celebrating this union. It was, I get goosebumps now thinking about it. It was a a once-in-a-lifetime moment. It was great. And then, you know, sadly, uh, you know, a few months later, he he passed, and I kind of feel like he might have known that that was coming, and that's that's why they got married. Um, And then when I got the call that they wanted me to emcee his home going at the ballpark, I... I was like, I don't really know if I can get through it. Yeah. And it was it was really hard, but it was such a huge honor. So it's just been, you know, I, like, you, like you said, I didn't expect to be here, you know, 19 years later, let alone have all these experience, experiences that I had. I had no idea. Well, I, I'm so glad you're here. I mean, it... it Thank uh, you. I think of part of the experience of going to the ballpark for me is hearing your voice. Oh, it sets you. the joy. Thank you. It's a joyful experience when I, I don't go to that many games. I'm usually there with my wife or my kids or other family members. And I, it's funny now that I talk to you, it's that, that joyful tone that you set, I think is because you've been here and this is a community experience. Thank so you. I think we're really lucky to have you. Oh, so sweet. I'm not going to be, a, I'm going to be a, a, a going to show my bias uh, <laughs> uh, so thank you so much for coming into the chronicle and uh sharing uh-huh. these stories peter thank you this has been an, a really amazing conversation and these photographs and these pictures and these articles it's blowing my mind thank you so much this was so much fun thanks again appreciate it <laughs> my pleasure You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to my guest, Ronell Brooks-Moon. Our producer today is me, Peter Hartlob. Supervising producer is King Kaufman. Executive producer is Tim O'Rourke. And our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Our music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album, Community. Read our columns and subscribe to The Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. Chronicle podcasts are on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com slash podcasts with an S.